Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump headlining a high-priced fundraiser for his co-defendant, Rudy Giuliani, as the former president says he might try to get his Georgia election fraud case moved to a federal court. Plus, Mayor Eric Adams going off on the issue that he says will, quote, destroy New York City, the migrant crisis. Tens of thousands of migrant children are now starting school here in the Big Apple, as the mayor says there is no end in sight to that massive problem. And Elon Musk secretly ordering satellites turned off, the same ones that are powering Ukraine's internet, I should note. It disrupted a planned sneak attack on Russian forces. But he told an author that Starlink was, quote, meant for Netflix and chill, not war. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight in Washington, another Trump defender is paying the price for loyalty to the 45th president. His former advisor, Peter Navarro, has been found guilty of contempt of Congress after he defied a subpoena that was tied to the January 6th Congressional Committee's investigation. While in Georgia, the election interference case there, Trump has notified the judge that he may try to do what several of his co-defendants are already attempting, move the case to a federal court and potentially a more favorable venue. And in Bedminster, New Jersey tonight, Trump is headlining an event for his co-defendant, Rudy Giuliani, in an effort to pay down his mounting legal bills. It only costs you $100,000 a plate to get in the door. We know that Giuliani has millions of dollars in unpaid legal bills. That's according to new CNN reporting tonight. He's hoping to raise at least a million dollars. My next guest is an attorney who is representing Rudy Giuliani in the state of Georgia. Brian Tevis, welcome back to The Source. Thank you, Brian, for being here. Can you confirm that he is trying to raise about a million dollars tonight and how much ultimately that your client does need to raise? I can't confirm how much he's trying to raise. I assume that they're trying to raise as much as possible, and I think that they're going to need it. If you look at how much the state has already spent on a case like this, all the district attorneys they've pulled from the line, all the paper copy costs, all the investigative work, all the things they're doing, I don't care how much money you have, you cannot outspend the state. And so just being named an indictment of this magnitude and knowing the scale, the scope, the length of this trial, the, uh, even the preliminary matters is going to be extremely costly and the state has nearly unlimited funds. Yeah, and of course, Giuliani has other legal fees in addition to outside of what's happening in Georgia. But there's this fundraiser happening tonight, Brian. We also know that Giuliani and the former president appeared together at this Bikers for Trump rally on Monday night. As you know, per the terms of Giuliani's release, they can't discuss this case in any way, indirectly or directly, except through counsel like you. Have you been assured that that they have not discussed it directly? Well, I can assure you that, as I said before, the court has made an order and the clients are going to comply with the order. I mean, those are the conditions of bond. And generally, in a case like this, you may have defense agreements among the attorneys where the exchange of information goes between the defense counsel, but I have no reason to believe that anybody's intending to violate their bond orders. Uh, You were there in the courtroom yesterday. Uh, Of course, you started representing Giuliani when he came to surrender in Georgia just a few weeks ago. Last time it was a little unclear when we spoke, but are you fully representing him in this case now going forward? At this time, I'm still representing him. That's correct. And do you plan to, to see this case going forward in the state of Georgia? I mean, we'll be counsel for the mayor as long as he needs us and as long as he wants us to be in the case. Um, I don't know, again, how long this case is going to be. There's a lot of questions about which court are we going to be in? How long is it going to go? You know, is it going to be October? Is it going to be March? Is it going to be years from now? 
There are a lot of things that can change, and that's, that's the case in pretty much any case. We come in and out of cases all the time. Um, this is nothing different than an ordinary case with that regard. Yeah, well, it's certainly not an ordinary case, though. I'm sure you would agree with that. If we, speaking of motions here, former President Trump has notified the judge that he might try to move his case from state court to federal court. Are you planning on filing a motion regarding Giuliani's indictment in Georgia soon? We are planning to file several motions, um, one of them involving the indictment. Um, we haven't filed a motion yet on anything regarding the removal. We're watching that closely, but for now, we're focused on what's in front of us. The state has returned this massive indictment involving all kinds of interstate allegations involving many people, and so far, I haven't seen anybody really pick that apart. As you probably know, I brought in co-counsel David Wolf. He's been doing this forever. He's an expert in motions, and we've gone after this indictment, and you can expect to see a motion regarding it uh, very soon. How soon and what is that motion going to look like? Is, is it to sever? Is it to move it to federal court? Is it to, to outright dismiss these charges against your client? Well, the motion, I can say, will be filed imminently, um, but the content of it is going to be particular to the indictment, not necessarily removal, but issues that we see in the indictment. This is something that we, we like to do, we typically do. In any case, the first thing you start with is, what is the state alleging occurred? And there are still, even though there are allegations, and an indictment is not evidence, it's merely what the state intends to prove later. Um, but they have rules on how they have to do that. They have to give you enough information to defend the case. A RICO indictment is, you know, a party to a crime on steroids, so to speak. Georgia's party to a crime is also already very liberal. When you pile racketeering on top of that, the state can bring in all sorts of extra information um, and be very general in the allegations. And so we hope to force them to have to focus, pick some of the avenues that they plan to prosecute, and challenge some of the things that we think are defective right out of the gate. Okay, so you are planning to file something imminently. You're saying it's not going to be to, to move it to federal court or anything like that. Uh, one other question on Giuliani himself. You know, the grand jury in Washington, D.C. is still meeting. We saw them meeting the other day for the first time in about a month. It's the same grand jury that indicted the former president on federal charges regarding efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Is your client worried that he is going to be indicted in that investigation? I mean... I don't know if he's worried or not. Whenever I've communicated with him, he seems focused. He seems the same as he's always been whenever I've spoken to him um, or we've had conferences with counsel. Um, nobody wants to be indicted by the government, state, federal, or otherwise. It's, it's a stressful thing to have to undergo. It's another front on which you have to fight. The government's trying to take your liberty. And they have, as I said before, they have unlimited resources to do it. So certainly nobody looks forward to having to fight on another front. If that happens, um, then we'll be prepared to meet that as well. And Brian, what's your ballpark on how much the Georgia case could potentially cost Rudy Giuliani in legal bills? I have no idea. That depends on how long it goes, whether people are severed. I mean, it's a difference to have a trial between a couple defendants and 19 defendants. I mean, you have 19 cross-examinations. You have 19 questions for Do you expect he'd try to sever his from the other co-defendants so he's tried potentially alone? I think that in court yesterday, I believe that the judge, in some of the commentary that he made, is intending to sever the two um, defendants who have filed speedy trial demands. What goes on past that? We're looking to see a scheduling order. We'll look and see what other defendants are doing. These are all strategic decisions that you're going to make on a day-by-day -day basis because, you know, criminal litigation is fluid. And so we have to make adjustments on the fly, plan accordingly, but we'll address that if we need to. The main thing is every step we take is going to be done in the governor, in the uh, excuse me, in the mayor's best interest. 
Brian Tevis, attorney for Rudy Giuliani in the state of Georgia, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. My next guest knows a very different Rudy Giuliani than the one that we saw in that Fulton County booking photo. Ken Friedman was actually the press secretary for Giuliani's 1993 mayoral campaign and has been very outspoken about him, to say the least. I mean, what do you make of the fact, you know, Brian Tevis, his attorney, says they're imminently filing a motion. They'll let us know what that motion is going to look like. Rudy Giuliani right now is at Bedminster at a fundraiser trying to raise money to pay a lot of a lot of legal fees. Did you ever think he'd be in this position? No, nobody could imagine he'd be in this position, at least of all him. But he incurred these legal fees as a result of his trying to overturn the election on behalf of his client and friend Donald Trump. So it seems to me Donald Trump should pony up more uh, for Rudy's legal defense than he already has. The last time I checked, he had, he had uh, contributed 340000 to his uh, legal defense fund. Yeah. Uh, he can certainly afford more. Unless, again, he, he has about $100 million in his own legal defense fund, Trump does. Yeah, and that was just a small fee compared to what Rudy Giuliani is facing here. When you have you know, known him since the 90s, what happened? What changed from Rudy Giuliani being this legendary U.S. attorney, this former mayor here of New York City, into a co-defendant in the state of Georgia, uh, unindicted potentially in other cases, uh, and the fact that he's having to, to fundraise so much money? Well, he took on Donald Trump as a client. And, you know, shame on him for not knowing that he wouldn't pay his bills. Shame on him for not knowing that he would get in trouble, certainly not to the degree that he's gotten in. I don't think he ever anticipated being indicted, certainly. Uh, but he should have known better. Um, Donald Trump has a long history of not paying his attorneys and, and not caring about, uh, you know, how, how it turns out for them. How much has his lifestyle changed? I mean, CNBC said in 2012 that he was one of the richest politicians in America and had a wealth of about $65 million. And now he's struggling to pay, you know, they claimed $20,000 recently. He had a very expensive divorce, as you know, Caitlin. And um, his legal fees are are just adding up every day. And he doesn't have a way really to make a living because his law licenses have been suspended in in D.C. and New York. Who would hire him as an attorney anyway? So he's left to cameo... uh, appearances and uh, his WABC talk show, which I understand he makes about $400,000 a year, but that's just a drop in the bucket compared to what he owes. And he's also selling his apartment here in New York. Yes, yes. He's listed it for, I believe, $6.5 million. Uh, I think he paid four seven seven dollars in t- 2002. It's a $2 million increase, but it d- didn't appreciate the way so many other apartments in that neighborhood have. So it's a fire sale. It seems like a very different Rudy Giuliani than the one that you were working for in 1993. It's a, it's a, a chastened and very sad and some say pathetic uh, shadow of his former self. And How I'm very sad, sad to see it. Well, I, I, I think the attorneys should be telling him that uh, his only goal should be to die a free man and keep kicking the, 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 uh, the can down the road and, and delay, delay, delay on these uh, legal uh, matters as long as he can. And same for Trump. Ken Friedman, I mean, to see him in 1993 to now 2023, thank you for sharing that insight with us tonight. Thank you so much. And yet another Trump ally is also strapped for cash and pleading for money tonight. That's Peter Navarro, who we saw earlier today exiting a courthouse after the former White House official was convicted today of contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the House committee that was investigating January 6th. Officially, Navarro was Trump's trade advisor, of course, but unofficially, he was also one of the chief proponents of Trump's baseless claims of mass voter fraud. 
He used his post-conviction news conference, as you see here, to make an appeal to supporters for money. When CNN asked if he has spoken to the former president or reached out for help with his legal bills, this is what Navarro said. (laughs) President Trump has been a rock in terms of assistance. Uh, We talk when we need to talk. I love President Trump. He's been very supportive of me. Not really a yes and not really a no. I should note at the heart of this was Navarro claiming that Trump had put immunity privileges over this, and that's why he did not comply. Trump never offered any testimony to that. Navarro is now the second Trump aide to face contempt of Congress charges. Steve Bannon is the other. He's appealing his conviction right now. And Navarro's attorneys are already pushing for a mistrial, arguing that jurors took an outdoor break too close to where protesters and media usually gather outside the courthouse. He is facing up to a year in prison tonight. Also, there are now 319 military nominations that are being held up because of one single Republican senator who says he's not budging. How does all of this end? Plus, as the president is taking off for a major overseas trip, Americans' confidence in their commander-in-chief is dwindling. Brand new CNN polling with warning lights that are flashing red for the White House and for President Biden as he is running for re-election. Tonight, top Democrats are digesting brand new CNN polling that is stirring up new concerns about President Biden's re-election campaign. Our poll of registered voters found that the president's approval rating is at 39 percent, with broad concerns about his age, his stamina, and his sharpness, even among Democrats and those who lean blue. More than two-thirds said that the party should pick someone other than President Biden as their nominee. And when you broaden it all out to registered voters, all registered voters, Nearly half say that any Republican presidential nominee they believe would be better than Biden in 2024. Voters are pretty evenly split in a hypothetical rematch between President Biden and Donald Trump. But our poll did find that Nikki Haley could beat Biden in this potential matchup. Let's go beyond these numbers with former Obama administration official Van Jones and Georgia's former lieutenant governor, Republican Jeff Duncan. They are both CNN political commentators, and thank you both for being here. Van, obviously, as the Democrat at this table, let me start with you, because I mean, what we're seeing from this is Democratic voters' confidence in President Biden has dropped over the last six months. I mean, how do you think the White House sees this? Is this a reality check, or, or do they not buy these numbers? I think that what the White House uh, feels is that um, we're the, the, the good that uh, Biden has done, the improvements in the economy, the fact that the, the nose of the plane is pointed up just hasn't set in yet with bo- with voters. I think that's that's their view and that there's a communications problem in terms of explaining all that type of stuff. I think for regular Democrats, uh, we've been called bedwetters. Uh, I would say invest in pampers and depends because we are freaking out with these numbers. Uh, people are, are upset and scared uh, because, uh, you know, Biden is someone who brings out a lot of affection in us, but also worry. He's like that grandpa that you love, you respect, he's done so much good for you. But do you want him to take on a high-pressure job for six more years? It's just there, there's some real. You said we're trying to digest. Uh, we need some Pepto Pepto Bismol uh, trying to digest these numbers and what's going on. But I, I think the, the White House thinks uh, we are a year out and we got plenty of time to turn these numbers around. Yeah, we have certainly heard that from from some former officials who used to work there today. I mean, Jeff, you're the Republican here. You've obviously you know not been sparing in your criticism of Donald Trump as the front runner. For Republicans, but when you look at these numbers and the breakdown, Biden is in a statistical dead heat with Republican candidates. He is virtually tied with everyone, including Donald Trump 
except Nikki Haley. Those numbers are different there. You see 49 to 43%. And of course, I've heard from Nikki Haley's camp. They are certainly pleased about this. But I mean, she's not the Republican frontrunner right now. So how should Republicans be looking at these numbers? Yeah, the least surprising thing in my inbox this morning was that poll. Um, there's really hard to point to any really successful wins on Joe Biden's behalf. And I think Democrats are are, are trying to find that that same uh, angle, too, They're trying to find something to highlight, something to champion. But but d- Democrats have the same problem Republicans do. If de- Democrats nominated anybody other than Joe Biden, they'd be 10 plus points in front of Donald Trump. And if Republicans nominated anybody other than Donald Trump, uh, they would be 20 points in front of Joe Biden. And when you watch somebody like Nikki Haley starting to climb the ladder, I think it really points back to what we saw play out in that debate. She really took a full-throated uh, you know, approach to, to rebuking Donald Trump and telling him that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the nominee and he was a kind of a fake Republican and raised debt $8 trillion. And I can't help but think if we just could get out of our own way as Republicans and nominate somebody that's willing to talk about immigration, in, in, a, in a cumulative effort, talk about the border and how secure it needs to be, but then also be willing to have that conversation about 16 million undocumented folks here and who deserves to stay on temporary status and who deserves to go back home. Talk about guns and mental health issues and concerns. Talk about those issues that the middle cares about too, because I think the ultimate winning strategy for a Republican, and I could almost guarantee a Republican beats Joe Biden in 2024, if they're willing to be a conservative, but also willing to have a conversation with the middle. That is the winning strategy. Yeah, and Van, I mean, what do you think about that argument? Well, look, I mean, uh, that that sounds good, except the Republican Party right now is like more uh, uh, interested in attacking transgender kids and all kind of crazy stuff. And so uh, you guys have got a bunch of problems on your side. And what I would say about to say that Joe Biden doesn't have anything to run on, I just think that's just uh, counterfactual. Uh, when you look at the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, when you look at the infrastructure, uh, Trump had infrastructure week every week and never got any infrastructure. We got a whole bill done, the CHIPS Act, um, uh, uh, hate crimes, marriage equality. I mean, you can go down the list. He's, he's, he, is, he has been a very productive president, but the country is just hurting and uncertain. And uh, they don't think that his shoulders are strong enough to carry us uh, forward uh, yet. But to say that you know he doesn't have anything to run on, he's got a bunch of stuff to run on, it's not getting through. And the Republicans are running themselves into the ground by talking about everything but the stuff that people care about, which, by the way, isn't jumping on immigrants. It's about these prices. And what are you going to do about that? Well, Jeff, let me ask you about another number that was in here, though, because the polling shows Republicans are more voted, more motivated to vote the Democrats are right now. Basically, Republican voters that CNN surveyed are more excited about voting for a Republican than Democrats are for voting for a Democrat. So what does that mean if you're someone like a Larry Hogan, who is considering and leaving the door open to a potential third party run that a lot of people who used to work for Joe Biden or currently do say that's the risk there in handing the election to Donald Trump than it is over Joe Biden, especially if there is that enthusiasm gap? Well, I know Van spoke with great passion about uh, President Biden, but only 39% of America actually agrees with him uh, at this point in the game. Uh, yeah, look, Larry Hogan, Glenn Youngkin, Brian Kemp, there's those that are out there that are conservative governors that have a track record to run on. Uh, and I think that, you know, they're trying to do the math about what this buzzsaw looks like with the Republican Party. I mean, there's certainly chaos on the battlefield, and I, I certainly don't want to make excuses for the 50-plus percent of Republicans that that still answer a poll question that the election was rigged, because it wasn't. It isn't. And we're going to watch that play out. America is going to meet uh, the real Donald Trump. They're going to meet the real Rudy Giuliani. They're going to meet the real Republican surrounding cast of characters that really try to drag us through the mud to just off-gas uh, a loss. 
But that isn't leadership. I think America is, is one generational leader away from truly changing the direction of this country. One person that inspires this country. If you think about it, a president does very little for the folks listening here tonight. They do, do very little to the traffic that they sit in in the mornings, the school curriculum that they study, their kids study. But what they do is they set the tempo for the country. And Republicans and this country need somebody better than Joe Biden, and we need somebody better than Donald Trump. We deserve it as Americans. We work too hard to save our money and to put our kids, raise our families. We just deserve better. And I'm hoping we see a better matchup than those two in 2024. We shall see. But right now, the numbers look likely for that. Jeff Duncan, Van Jones, thank you both for your time tonight. Thank you. It is a political issue, a political move over abortion that is garnering fierce blowback. Why this Republican senator's refusal to greenlight more than 300 military promotions has top officials in the armed forces now sounding the alarm. Today, the Pentagon said that a single senator is now holding up the nominations of 319 senior military officials. That number only increasing, only expected to increase. For the first time in U.S. history, three branches of the military are now without a Senate-confirmed leader. That's the Army, the Navy, and the Marines. At the end of the month, the highest-ranking military official, the Joint Chiefs Chairman, General Mark Milley, is retiring. And by the end of the year, if this continues to go on, it could be up to 600 nominations that are all on hold. This stems from, of course, Senator Tommy Tuberville's block of all military promotions in protest of the Pentagon's abortion policy. Pressure, though, has been mounting on both sides of the political aisle for the Alabama Republican to back down. But he has said so far that he is not doing that. He said he's not budging. Our next guest is Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. He is on the armed services and also the father of a Marine reservist. So thank you, Senator, for being here. Senator Tuberville, he's not backing down, he says. That's what he told my colleague, Manu Raju, yesterday. How do you see this actually ending? Well, Caitlin, uh, this is unprecedented. Um, Senator Tuberville has a right not to like a Pentagon policy, uh, but he's been given the opportunity to change it. Uh, we're on the Armed Services Committee together. He was given a vote in the Armed Services Committee to change the policy. He failed. He couldn't convince his colleagues to go along with him. When we had the bill on the floor of the Senate, we said, we'll give you a vote on the floor. And he refused to even ask for a vote because he knew he would lose both Democratic and Republican votes. He shouldn't take out his inability to persuade his colleagues of his position. He shouldn't take that out on hundreds of military officers who are awaiting promotions, who are trying to move their families across the country, who want to enroll their kids in school at the beginning of the school year. This is hurting our military families and it's hurting our nation's readiness. Three of our services now do not have confirmed service chiefs. It's time for the Republican uh, uh, minority in the Senate to quit enabling Tommy Tuberville and tell him to step aside and let's approve these military nominations and keep our nation safe. Is that a message for Senator McConnell? It's a message for Senator McConnell and all the Republican colleagues. This would not be tolerated on the Democratic side. If I was trying to do this on the Democratic side, the leader would lock me in the office and make it increasingly painful for me until I agreed to submit. And so what we need Tommy to do is back off of this. Um, but he's not going to do it on his own. And it's going to take uh, Senator McConnell and others forcing him to step aside. Because what, why would... Why would he want to hurt the military over this? And Caitlin, if I could go into the policy, the policy that Senator Tuberville is complaining about is a military policy that says if a woman service member 
is posted in an area where abortion is now illegal after Dobbs and decides to terminate a pregnancy, the military will, will pay for her to travel to a place where she can terminate the pregnancy at her own cost, but they'll allow her to travel, mm-hmm. pay for travel expenses. Caitlin, we do this for women in the federal prison system. If they're impregnated and need to terminate a pregnancy, we pay for their travel. We do it for women Peace Corps volunteers. If they live in countries where they can't terminate a pregnancy legally, we will pay for them to travel to the United States so they can make their own health care decisions. Coach Tuberville wants the women who have volunteered to serve our military to have fewer rights than women prisoners and Peace Corps volunteers. His position is outrageous. He's entitled to it. But when he can't convince his colleagues, he should back off. Well, I mean, trust me, we had him on the first episode of this program talking about this, you know, several weeks ago. And the thing is, though, obviously this is his position. We've heard Senator McConnell say, you know, he doesn't agree with it. Technically, Democrats could move one nomination at a time. It would be incredibly time-consuming. I'm well aware of that. But do you see it potentially coming to that point if, if we get to October and there is still no confirmed Joint Chiefs chairman? If we do that, that's all we'll ever do, Caitlin. We won't legislate. We won't pass budgets. We're in a budget crisis right now. To vote on 300 non-controversial nominations with Coach Senator Tuberville demanding maximum time on each could take us through the end of the year. The other offer some have made is, why don't you pick some of the top people, like the service chiefs, and vote on them, and then just let Senator Tuberville punish all those down the ranks. That's not the way the military operates. Uh, Officers say officers eat last. You don't punish the people down the ranks to advantage the people up the ranks. We need to confirm these people who have spent their career sacrificing for the country. It's the Republicans' problem to solve. They have to get Senator Tuberville to back off this unpatriotic effort, which is clearly being cheered by our enemies now as they watch this. Yeah, well, there was the five-week recess, I would note, but I want to ask you about some CNN polling that came out today. It shows that almost half of registered voters think any Republican nominee they believe would be better than President Biden. 67% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents want the party to nominate someone else. I mean, are you concerned or how concerned are you about President Biden's standing? Well, look, President Biden has done a great job as president. 13 and a half million new jobs, manufacturing back, inflation reducing every day, strategies like helping seniors better perform prescription drugs. Clearly, those of us who have been here have been part of these accomplishments. So we got to get out and we got to sell much stronger. I still believe we're in kind of a post-COVID hangover where people are a little bit reluctant to get their hopes up with some of the positive things that are going on. So look, President Biden's accomplishments have been strong. We've got to get out there and sell them. I feel like the time between now and November of 2024 is going to be one accomplishment after the next on the Democratic side and one legal trial and tribulation after the next for President Trump. Do you think the White House needs to do a better job selling that message? Yes, they, they, they are doing it. I thought the president's speech on Labor Day was great, talking about uh, when President Trump was in office, infrastructure week was a punchline. Now infrastructure is a headline because America's rebuilding infrastructure again in, the, in a major way, probably the most major way since the Eisenhower administration. They are selling, and we Democrats in Congress and Democratic governors have to do that as well. Senator Tim Kaine, thank you for joining us here on The Source tonight. Absolutely, Caitlin. Mayor Eric Adams here in New York, not missing word when it comes words when it comes to the city's massive influx of migrants. I don't see an ending to this. This issue 
will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. A blunt warning, we will speak to the former acting Homeland Security Secretary right after this. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. New York Mayor Eric Adams has a blunt warning about the impact of the migrant crisis here in the city. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. The reality, more than 110,000 asylum seekers have come through New York City just since last spring. My next guest was the acting secretary of the Homeland Security Department under former President Donald Trump. Chad Wolf, thank you for joining tonight. Obviously, as I noted, you were running the DHS, uh, running DHS. What do you make of these calls for, for more federal help? Do you think that they're warranted? Well, look, I think Mayor Adams has a has a mess on his hands. He's trying to deal with an influx, a historic influx of illegal migrants there in New York City. Look, I think the federal government needs to be doing more, and it starts with actually securing that border. You've got to be able to stop the influx of these illegal aliens into all communities across the country, not only New York City, in order to get your hands around the issue here. And what, and what the mayor is really talking about are these downstream effects. It's particularly in New York City, it's the amount of children in their public education system, in their public health system. Uh, these are re- the real issues of what happens when you leave that border wide open and you have a historic number of folks coming in. So the mayor is not alone. Obviously, we have the, the Massachusetts governor, uh, the mayor of, of Chicago and others, all trying to deal with an influx of individuals they have not planned for and they do not know how to care for at the end of the day because the federal government is not helping them. Yeah, well, we've seen that even though, you know, everyone's worst fears after the end of Title 42 back in May when you and I last spoke weren't realized. Border crossings were actually at a low back in June and July, the latest numbers we had. But when it comes to the impact impact that we are seeing on these cities, I mean, New York has this right to shelter law where they, you know, have to shelter these asylum seekers that come here. That is part of a complicating factor here. But if you were running DHS right now, I mean, what would you do differently? How would you help someone like Mayor Adams? Well, look, there's no easy answers and there's no magic bullet to solve this crisis overnight. Again, I come back to actually securing the border and stopping the flow. When New York City is trying to absorb hundreds and thousands of individuals every single week, that is problematic. And so you've got to stop that so that they're able to get their hands around what's going on there. They're able to work with the federal government to address this. But it all starts with actually securing the border and making sure that we're stopping to incentivize, stop incentivizing more and more illegal aliens coming. When you're handing out work authorizations and work permits and everything else that the Biden administration is doing, the flow is going to continue. This isn't rocket science. We, people have to know inside the administration, and of course they know that their policies will continue to incentivize these folks. And you're going to continue to have communities like this overwhelmed. And once they get overwhelmed like this, it's very little 
that the federal government can do. There's not enough money that you can throw at this issue. You've got to you got to address what is the, what is the underlying cause here. And that is unchecked and uncontrolled illegal immigration occurring mainly on the southern border, but also now along our northern border as well. Well, that's interesting what you say about the work requirements, because that's actually something Mayor Adams wants expedited or a shorter time frame. So then they can migrants who are here can get to work faster. But a lot of Republican governors are, are pointing to Eric Adams's comment hitting the Biden administration. But some of these are same governors who have sent, you know, busloads of migrants to places here like New York City. This is something that the mayor himself referenced today. Started with a madman down in Texas, decided he wanted to bus people up to New York City. You have said that busing migrants has forced this national conversation. It certainly has. But, I mean, it hasn't fixed the issue. And obviously people are suffering. So do you support that happening or what is the solution here? Well, it's not going to fix the issue. Actually, fixing the issue is changing the policies and securing the border. But look, you, you talked about a number, 110,000 uh, in New York City over the past 12 months. I believe that was the number. Texas absorbs around 20 to 30,000 a month. And so, you know, you have a you have a governor down there that is at his wits end and is begging the federal government to help him secure the border and protect Texans. And when he does something like putting maritime buoys uh, in that river to try to deter some of that illegal immigration, of course, then the Biden administration, instead of working with the governor to try to address this issue, they go to court and they sue him. And so I think that the, the priorities are backwards here at the end of the day. But again, there's not a silver bullet that's going to to uh, solve this issue overnight, not only for yeah. the mayor, not for any governor. It's actually getting back to actually securing the border and stopping the illegal flow that that we've seen. So I'm glad you brought up the buoys because we just heard from an appeals court that issued a temporary stay that allows Texas to keep those floating barriers in the Rio Grande, at least for now. But I mean, there had been a ruling from a lower court that said they need federal approval to put those structures in those waterways. I mean, I know this is something that was even brought up when you were in office, when you were running DHS as an idea, and it ultimately did not happen. Uh, do you agree, though, that they don't have the right without federal approval to put those there? Well, look, I, as you indicated, I think this is going to be appealed probably all the way to the Supreme Court at the end of the day. The governor believes that he has the, the authority and the right to do that. Obviously, the Biden administration through the Justice Department disagrees with that. But look, at the end of the day, this is what we should be talking about, which is how do we stop the flow and secure that border? And instead of suing the governor, I think the administration should actually be working with him. If you contrast that with what the administration is doing by trying to work with New York City, with the mayor, with the governor of Massachusetts and others uh, to find these work permits for the illegal aliens, you have a priority scheme that is out of whack here a little bit. Instead of trying to protect Americans on the southern border, they're more focused on work authorization for illegal aliens. So I think their priorities are backwards. Look, if they don't like the maritime buoys, that's fine. Work with the governor to put some measures in place that actually deter the influx that he has seen in his state week after week after week. Yeah, well, I would say they they did put in place a pretty strict asylum policy that even progressive Democrats don't like. But, you know, the last time you and I talked was in May. Since then, there have been, you know, you worked for former President Trump. There have been three more indictments of him. Is former President Trump someone that you would ever either work for again or support in the 2024 election? Look, I had the privilege of working uh, with the president very closely. Uh, and a lot of the policies he put in, not only from a, a homeland security perspective, which I had a front row seat for, but across the board, putting Americans first. So a lot of those America first policies, I think, is exactly what the country needs today. 
uh, we're on the wrong track. So uh, I would be supportive of not only President Trump, but any America first uh, leader that actually wants to get the country back on track. Would you work for him again? Uh, if I had the privilege to, absolutely. Chad Wolf, thanks so much for your time tonight. All right. Thank you. He has rocketed people into space, taken over Twitter, literally, and reinvented the auto industry as we know it. And now tonight we have learned that Elon Musk had the power to turn off satellites that stop Ukraine's sneak attack on Russian forces. They needed Internet. New details on the billionaire's role in the ongoing Ukraine war next. Some pretty shocking new details about the scope of the influence that Elon Musk has on the war in Ukraine. The billionaire secretly ordered his engineers to turn off his Starlink satellite communications network near the Crimean coast last year, ultimately disrupting what was supposed to be a Ukrainian sneak attack on the Russian naval fleet. That is according to a new excerpt from Walter Walter Isaacson's biography, Elon Musk, part of it that has been obtained exclusively by CNN, And in it, Isaacson says that Ukrainian submarine drones were fitted with explosives, lost connectivity, and washed ashore harmlessly as they approached the Russian fleet. Joining me now, CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand. I mean, Natasha, the details in here are pretty astonishing. What have you learned about what was behind Elon Musk's decision here and and what the Ukrainians had to say about this? Yeah, Caitlin. So essentially what this biography says is that Elon Musk was driven by a fear that Russia would respond to this kind of attack on Sevastopol, on Crimea, with nuclear weapons, and that it would result essentially in a mini Pearl Harbor, according to the quote that he gave to Walter Isaacson. Now, of course, Russian officials have used this kind of rhetoric before, right? They frequently threaten that they're going to use nuclear weapons and that they're going to escalate in that sense. And of course, the Ukrainians have since repeatedly uh, attacked Russian naval fleets outside of Crimea without any such response. But Elon Musk apparently really took this to heart. And he believed, according to this biography, that this would result in absolute disaster. So he ordered his engineers to, at the moment that Ukraine was going to attack these Russian uh, vessels, turn off Starlink's satellite communication system so that they essentially could not carry out this attack. But this biography also offers a really interesting window into how Musk views Starlink's role writ large when it comes to wars. And according to this biography, he is apparently very ambivalent about it. He said, quote, how am I in this war? Starlink was not meant to be involved in wars. It was so people can watch Netflix and chill and get online for school and do good, peaceful things, not drone strikes. Now, according to this excerpt, the Ukrainian officials, of course, begged him to turn the system back on because it is so critical for them to communicate on the battlefield. And he apparently had conversations with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley to kind of ease Washington's anxiety about just how much control he appeared to have over Ukraine's uh, battlefield communication systems. So really what this shows is just how influential and how powerful Elon Musk, one very unpredictable billionaire, has become uh, when it comes to the U.S. and Ukraine's ability to continue to prosecute this war, Caitlin. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. And just to see the influence he has over U.S. officials as well. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. Meanwhile, another story we are covering tonight. He is trapped several thousand feet underground, and officials are warning right now that it could take days to rescue an American from a Turkish cave. We have the latest next. Rescuers are working overtime tonight to save an American who has been trapped in this Turkish cave thousands of feet deep. 
Mark Dickey was part of an exploration mission when he suffered internal bleeding almost 4,000 feet beneath the surface. He is now in stable condition. He's at a campsite, but it is still located about 300,000 feet down. If you look at this graphic, you can see where he is on this winding cave map. That is deeper than two Empire State buildings stacked on top of one another. Of course, a rescue team has made it down to him. They have delivered him blood, and they are sending back a message tonight. Uh, Mark Dickey from nearly 1,000 meters. I want to thank everyone that's down here and thank the uh, response of the caving community. The, uh, the caving world is a really tight-knit group, and it is amazing to see how many people have responded on the surface. Rescuers say that his condition does seem to be improving, meaning that he will be able to start the trek upwards soon. But because of that health condition and the complex cave structure, officials say it could take days before Mark can actually get back to the surface. Obviously, we are wishing them the best. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.